every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, in a holiday-shortened week here in Hong Kong. Thank you for making this program one of the most listened-to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the business and finance headlines for Wednesday, the 21st of June. President Joe Biden hailed what he said was progress in restoring U.S.-China ties after Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up two days of meetings in Beijing, including a meeting with President Xi Jinping. Mr. Biden said Tuesday that Mr. Blinken had done a hell of a job in diffusing tensions between the two superpowers, and he said progress had been made. The People's Bank of China on Tuesday cut key benchmark lending rates as authorities pushed ahead with monetary easing in a bid to boost the economy. The one-year loan prime rate, which is the rate used for corporate and household loans, was lowered by 10 basis points to 3.55%, while the five-year rate for a reference for mortgages was trimmed by the same margin to 4.2%. It was the first reduction in the lending rates for 10 months. Alibaba's long-serving chief executive Daniel Zhang will relinquish his role as CEO of the group ahead of it splitting into six separate entities. Eddie Wu, chairman of Alibaba's flagship commerce sites Taobao and Tmall, will replace Mr Zhang in September. Alibaba co-founder and vice chairman Joseph Tai will replace Mr Zhang as chairman. Mr Zhang, who has served as CEO for eight years, is to remain in charge of the cloud unit, which he took over in December. The annual inflation rate in Hong Kong edged lower to 2% in May from 2.1% in the previous month and less than market forecasts. The underlying inflation rate, netting out the government's one-off relief measures, was steady at 1.8%, the same as in April. On a monthly basis, consumer prices fell 0.3%, the first drop since May 2022. On today's programme, I'm joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter with plenty more business and finance news and information from across Asia. U.S. stocks fell for a second straight session Tuesday as strong housing data raised the prospect of higher interest rates. U.S. housing starts unexpectedly jumped to a 14-month high. Investors were also cautious ahead of Fed Chairman Jerome Powell appearing before the House Financial Services Committee later today to give his semi-annual testimony, which will be watched closely for clues on his thinking about interest rates. The S&P 500 slid half a percent to 4,389. The Dow fell by 245 points or 0.7% to 34,054. The Nasdaq Composite declined 0.2% to 13,667. Alibaba shares fell 4.5% in New York after Chinese e-commerce giant, uh, after the Chinese e-commerce giant said its chief executive and chairman Daniel Zhang plans to step down in September. Asia-Pacific markets traded mostly lower Tuesday as investors digested a 10 basis point cut in China's loan prime rate. Investors in Hong Kong were disappointed as about half the participants in a Reuters poll had forecast a deeper cut of at least 15 basis points to the five-year rate. 
Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 306 points, that's 1.5%, to 19,607. The Tech Index tumbled 2.5%. Alibaba closed 1.5% lower in Hong Kong. Alibaba Health Information Technology dropped 3%. And it looks like the slide will continue this morning. Futures markets are pointing to an opening decline of about 280 points for the Hang Seng. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was half a percent lower at 3,250. And in Japan, the Nikkei 225 recovered from earlier losses to end the day 0.1% higher. And Japanese trading houses jumped Tuesday after Berkshire Hathaway revealed on Monday that its wholly owned subsidiary, National Indemnity Company, has increased its stake in five Japanese trading firms to more than 8.5% on average. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peter and William. And also with us, William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at the Grow Investment Group. Morning, William. Good morning. Now, President Joe Biden held what he said was progress in restoring U.S.-China ties after Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up two days of meetings in Beijing, including a meeting with President Xi Jinping. Mr. Biden said Tuesday that Mr. Blinken had done a hell of a job in diffusing tensions between the two superpowers. And he said, we're on the right trail here. President Xi also lauded the robust discussion, saying the two sides have also made good progress and reached agreement on sp- specific issues. This is very good, he said, without declo- disclosing further details. Now, Mark, we've discussed many times, haven't we, on this program, uh, the state of US-China relations and the concerns that your firms have um, over it at IMA Asia. Um, how do they feel about this latest development? Do they feel more at ease that at least the two sides are talking maybe? Well, I haven't told them uh, since, since, since the talks and I haven't talked to them. But, you know, I have talked to several several people and, of course, the hope is that we've put a floor, at least temporarily, on the uh, on the dispute between the U.S. and China, not that much has been solved. You've heard <laughs> there were really almost no takeaways from this, other than the than the two sides met, and they met for a very long time. Mm. I think the meetings between the two foreign ministers uh, lasted more than eight hours, if you counted dinners and all the rest of it, plus with Xi Jinping and uh, etc. So that that's 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 encouraging, but. No agreement to establish communications, especially on, on military issues. Not even, I guess, on increasing the, the flights between the U.S. and China, mm-hmm. which some commentators dismissed as trivial. It's really important to a lot of our members, and I think to a lot of people that are listening, from a, both a personal and business basis. Because, you know, for example, major U.S. airline United only flies between Hong Kong and San Francisco right now. And there are a lot of other places to go and that raises prices that uh, that limits what you can do so yes the basis was set but at the same time we're also coming to a period where uh the tension the tension and the uh dialogue is going to going to uh step up especially as the presidential election approaches in the u.s and and other issues as well so it's a difficult time but they're all pointing to a, a personal meeting between she and Biden, which could take place 
once or twice in the next few months. G20 in in uh, in India in September, and then of course APEC in San Francisco, which somehow most commentators aren't mentioning by name, but it's uh, it's in the middle of November in San Francisco. So that's that's another possibility. It's not just the meeting itself, but they just have to talk more. And of course, the hope is that there are other visits by Janet Yellen, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, by the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, and maybe a few others. William, as well as being a concern for companies, this has also been a big concern for investors, hasn't it? And it's been one of the big overhangs over the Hong Kong and mainland markets. Does this ease investors' mm-hmm. concerns at all? Yeah, Peter, I think uh, from a portfolio manager perspective, we look at things in terms of the changes, right, incremental changes. And obviously, you know, the uh, resume of, you know, talk uh, is definitely a positive catalyst. Um, Although I think the investor and market is expecting, you know, at least in the medium term, you know, before the U.S. election in November next year, it will be kind of like on-off situation. But I think what happened in terms of dialogue is uh, definitely a positive catalyst. And it also reflects, you know, the post-COVID communication dynamic. If you look at what happened in the last a month or two, there were some global fund manager, global CEO travel to China. And after they go to China and talk to the domestic counterparties, when they go back, uh, oftentimes I hear that well, what, what they think and what they uh, hear or what they talk you know, on the ground is quite different from the media and other areas. So I think those ripple effect will slowly going back to that decision in terms of their global business development and the US-China relationship. So I believe, for example, in Q3, we'll see some more positive communication, you know, uh, happening. I mean, one of the, the, the striking things we've seen in the markets, William, over the last few months is the withdrawal of foreign investors. They're really now very underweight um, Chinese stocks. Um, they've pulled back from the markets. Do you think that there is enough here to persuade them now to maybe consider coming back into the market? Yeah, not enough, Peter, but this is not the first time, right? So, you know, global investor, they go to a market, you know, in and out, you know, on and off. And in particular, for example, this year, in terms of the GDP expectation in China, you know, earlier on this year, despite the government is saying that the target is 5%, but we're seeing some sales high saying that, oh, it would be 6% or so. And after the recent figure, you know, um, they revised down, you know, to 5.7, 5.5. We think, you know, 5.5, is achievable, you know, mm-hmm. if there are more kind of like momentum in different areas. But uh, Peter, in terms of fund flow, definitely we are seeing an outflow. And when we talk to the fund manager, actually, they got redemptions. Some of them are, you know, are big, you know, in recent months. Um, in terms of catalyst, um, my personal thinking is I think stimulus is not good enough anymore. One is its price in, second is um, unless there is huge stimulus on the consumption side, otherwise monetary policy is not enough. I think physical policy is okay, but it's not going to solve um, the unemployment problem. So if there is a catalyst, which we are seeing inside as well is earnings. For Q2 earnings, we are expecting about 15 to 20% earnings growth you know, in the China market. Um, if that come into rotation, I think that would provide some uh, support or confidence that actually the corporate earnings is not as bad as um, the uh, macroeconomic uh, numbers, you know, in Q2. So I think earnings would be a catalyst for, for institutional investors if they have to come back to China. 
Mark, what do, you, what do you make of this stimulus that we've seen? It's really focused on monetary policy, hasn't it? They've, China's yeah. now cut all of its benchmark interest rates by about um, 10, 15 basis points. But investors, markets seem disappointed. I mean, they, they were hoping actually for a bigger cut um, in, the, in the loan prime rates. What do you make of this? It, it's sort of very marginal, isn't it, what the PPOC is doing? But uh, what, what's the purpose of this? Yeah, it seems to be being careful, but at the same time, recognizing that the government has to do something, not only in that area, but in property. Mm. And it, the problem is, is what's enough? Mm. Is, the, is it possible for them to even do enough to really stimulate the economy? Because part of it is sentiment, of course, mm. as, as we, and not only by investors, but by consumers and by others. And we've talked about this before, but it's, it's what I sometimes call long COVID. Again, not the uh, not the medical <laughs> part of COVID, but the overhang on, on on people's views of going forward, reluctance to 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 buy in many cases, to make investments, to do various things, not only in, not only in China but in Hong Kong as well. How long does that continue? Because they they're waiting in some ways for the other shoe to drop in case something else goes wrong. So I think we're seeing some of that, and that all has to be sorted out. I think it will be at some point. And what it's not doing in, in terms of not only financial investors, but uh, foreign direct investors, many of them are, most of them are staying. A few of them are mm-hmm. leaving, but most of them are staying because mm-hmm. they sort of agree. The Singapore foreign minister met with um, with Secretary Blinken on Blinken's mm-hmm. way to uh, to China and said there needs to be a, a, a settlement between the U.S. and China because these two are crucial for resolving most global issues, which mm. obviously is is mm. true, but also for companies, it's also crucial to them in terms of of looking forward and what their businesses are and what their um, what their goals and uh, objectives are. Yes, they're diversifying. Yes, they're they're looking for ways to do China for China. All this, all these sort of approaches, but at the same time, China is really important uh, to not only not only Western companies, but uh, Asian companies and, and the world, of course. So it's, it's going to be really important that, that China does find some ways to to boost the economy. But th- these interest rates are not going to do it, are they? They're not going to encourage businesses to uh, to go and invest more or consumers to go and spend because the problem is not that people can't borrow. Actually, they can borrow, you know, there's a lot of liquidity there and they can access it pretty cheaply. So th- this isn't going to be the solution, is it? Yeah, that's what yeah exactly. Like. Well, go ahead, William. Yeah, exactly. I think um, liquidity is, is abundant. You know, um, it's not about um, the uh, lending rate as well. It's about the confidence of the business owner. Mm. I think the good thing is um, the market size in China is big. And secondly, um, there's entrepreneurship. Because if you look at the business owner in China, most of them, they are first generation. So they have passed through different economic cycles. And to be honest, right now, it's quite economically cheap for them to build business line, you know, CapEx, hiring people, tax benefit. So I do see some uh, entrepreneur, you know, or business owner, they start building. But of course, overall confidence, I, I believe we, we have to wait a, a few months at least, you know, to see the momentum coming back. Mark, sorry. No, no, no. But also pushing this is that if you look around the rest of the world, and I know we keep hearing about the U.S. recession, which is happening tomorrow and then it's happening the day after tomorrow and maybe it will at some <laughs> point. But, you know, certainly other economies around the world, many of them are are not so strong or not as strong as they were. Mm-hmm. And China, despite the issues that we've been citing and others have been citing, 
still looks relatively good and expectations are are high and you know where mm. else are you going to where else are you going to focus on on these days sure southeast asia is looking good india in many cases but they don't make up for china mm. either on the ground or in terms of numbers do, do, let me ask you both is the Chinese government, its priority, it's no longer economic growth, is it? I, I get the impression that one of the reasons why it doesn't want to uh, pump this stimulus um, into into the market is it doesn't want to create another housing bubble or bubbles elsewhere. Its priority is no longer the actual growth number. What it's looking to do now is a quality of growth um, and maybe restructuring the economy. So that's going to take a lot longer to do, isn't it? Which is why maybe we didn't see any big announcements from the state. State Council on Friday. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I think the, the big gun is yet to come, Peter. But um, if you read between the lines, actually the highest priority right now is unemployment and stability, you know, I think politically and economically. So near-term or short-term stimulus or even the equity market uh, re- return might not be the highest, you know, agenda. And um, bubble, you know, already liquidative, there's extra stimulus, trying to pop up the real estate market, um, that would be last solution. If that happened and it didn't work, I think there was no extra, you know, stimulus, so-called can be a catalyst in the near term. So, so I refrain from expecting too much stimulus. I think we have to go back to the fundamental and basic. And um, to be honest, global and local investors are just too demanding. We are just reopening. I mean, China mm. in January. So it's just in a few months, like you have a big flu for three years, you're expecting people to recover in a few months, which is, you know, quite hard. But the, the, the economy is not doing too badly either, is it? Four and a half percent growth in the first quarter. It's not bad. Not bad, but I guess the expectations were it's going to be higher. You know, in terms of our forecast, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're below the we're below the uh, consensus, I guess. We're we're about at four point six percent for the year, which is, you know, it's not bad, but it's not mm. what what even the government thought it would be and maybe that's wrong and maybe that's that's pessimistic it's at the same time the other thing is i think chinese leaders uh probably read the media a little bit and keep hearing about china becoming the next japan in terms of its uh, terms of economic performance and you know going too far and overshooting in terms of the measures that they they employ and so on and they may be being a, a little bit careful maybe not believing that completely and that's probably an exaggeration but you can see where uh, where they might get a little a little concerned after hearing that many many times now in the media. What's to be done about the property market? That's the big drag on the economy, isn't it? It's you know if you include all the ancillary things that go around real estate development, like the servicing of houses and apartments and so on, it's about thirty percent of the economy. What can be done? Because clearly Beijing doesn't want to blow a new bubble um, into the property market, but at the same time, it can't just leave it like this. So, so what's to be done? Well, I think you know. Um the answer is to, to keep it stable. When I talk to a lot of different people, Peter, is quite interesting. You know, some people don't want the property price to go up because they, they don't have the property yet and they don't want to buy right now. And um, other people don't want the property price to go down because they have a lot of houses. If mm. it go down, they are not happy. So honestly speaking, you know, the, the price of the property it's not going to make a lot of people happy because of the dynamic, you know. I think it's the same thing happened, you know, in Asia, rest of the region. And um, in, in the short term, I believe both the government and the market just 
expect the property company to remain stable in terms of new houses building, you know, um, no need a lot of price increase, but it become healthier again. And um, But I believe the era of using real estate as a major asset class for a lot of people in China uh, has changed, you know, right now about seven zero seventy percent of the asset is in real estate. I believe it will go down to the normal norm globally. And I think it's good for the equity market and uh, bond market. So I, I don't believe there will be huge stimulus on the real estate market for, for that reason. Yeah, that's the key. William mentioned it's that, that high percentage of investment that that people in China have in the property market. And that's maybe this will accelerate and stimulate a change in that area, which is very important. And in the end, we'll have a, a positive impact. But in the short term, it certainly is worrying, uh, given the commitment and, and investment that, that a lot of everyday people have, let alone, uh, let alone the big investors. Yeah, Mark, if I may add one little point is um, we are portfolio managers, so we always look for investment opportunity. So given the huge you know, real estate kind of life size in China, what we are seeing opportunities in tier one city, you know, some of the hotels, um, they are being acquired by, you know, asset manager and then refurbished internally into uh, a service apartment to capture the younger generation. They like to rent houses, you know, service apartment in terms of buying. So I think we can talk about the economy. We can talk about um, kind of like the market sentiment. But I think for investor or for, for manager, you know, there is always an, uh, a trend or structure to capture the dynamic change of the paradigm. And uh, secondly, for example, REITs, Peter, I think the REITs market is developing very quickly. So easily it could replace some of the physical asset in the investor portfolio. So I think we, we, have, we don't have to abandon the real estate asset class in general. I think the China uh, market is moving, you know, slowly towards the world in terms of diversifying what investor can invest, you know, in the real estate sector besides just owning the physical property. Yeah, I think William raises an important point here. Uh, based on experience, not only in China, but China is a good example. They always, people find a way, right? They find mm. a way if, they, if, there, <laughs> if there are issues in one area, they find a way to to find uh, to find success in a, in another way, and you just outlined some possibilities there, and I suspect that's what will happen over time. But it, on the way to that, it can get a little messy, of course. Mm. Well, I suppose one thing then that investors have got to look at, given that China is cutting interest rates and the US still seems on track uh, to raise interest rates, is what does this mean for the Chinese yuan? It's slipped now to um, a six-month low. Do you still see weakness in the Chinese currency going forward? Yeah, I think the near term would would um would be like this, you know, in this range market. Um, in the longer term, I believe um there is motivation from the Chinese government to maintain or kind of like let remember appreciate a little bit because uh, besides the um economic agenda, unemployment rate and stability, I think from uh. Uh, country or longer term uh, vision perspective, I think the internationalization of renminbi is also important. So that's why every time when renminbi weaken to a certain level, we see support, you know, from the Chinese government. And I think it's good for global investors as well. So, but in the near term, Peter, I think um, it will remain range bound, but I don't think it will touch the low point that we've seen in the last month, you know, again. Let me just make one comment on internationalization of the renminbi, which which of course has been an objective for a long time, and it's been moving mm. 
somewhat slowly, sometimes sometimes periodically in that direction. That could be accelerated as we see the greater use of the of the renminbi now in in trade, and uh, in, you know mm. some countries are are adopting it. The Saudis say they're going to use it more in oil transactions. Mm. We'll see what happens, and so on. And so this may do it. It doesn't mean we're going to have full convertibility very soon. But as you know, as most of the world, maybe even including the United States, are trying to reduce the dependence on the dollar, you might see uh, might see a little bit movement in this direction. We've mm. said this before, and it may not happen, but uh, this this might be a trigger. William, what are your thoughts on the equity market on the mainland and, and here in Hong Kong now, given what we're seeing with uh, the, the, the stimulus, the lowering of interest rates? We've obviously, it's been a poor performer, hasn't it, out of the global markets um, this year. But do you see any signs that maybe a floor is being put in? Well, Peter, cheap. And the second word is very cheap. But very cheap is not good enough. Yeah, <laughs> cheap, it, it can stay cheap, times. can't it? It's a long time. So, so, so um, we believe this year would be a, a, a year of diversification in terms of sectors, in terms of company. And I do see opportunity, to be honest, you know, for global and regional investor because the downside risk is quite limited. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely a flaw over there. But um, whether the whole market will go up as expected, I put a question mark given the sentiment and weakness globally. But on the stock level, I do see uh, opportunities. And even on the company level, a recent example just happened today is look at Alibaba. Right now, they are splitting their business and you can see that CEO is focusing on the cloud business. I believe if they got separate listed, there will be good performance, you know, uh, in the cloud business, if you like. So the message here is if there is technology focus, high-end manufacturing or recently, for example, electric vehicle related theme that is, you know, supported by the government, more longer term theme. I do see risk capital will rotate back to those asset class. So company with still growth momentum definitely, you know, carry a premium. Uh, so, you know, again, it would be stock specific rather than long the whole kind of like China beta for this year. Let me ask you about Alibaba, because we had that um, shock news really yesterday, didn't we, that uh, Daniel Zhang is going to step down from his role as, as CEO of the overall group. When the, when the split was announced three months ago uh, into six separate units, the idea was that he was going to stay sort of sitting at the top of the holding group and then also uh, run the cloud business. What, what's changed, do you think? I don't think there's any change, but perhaps some of the investors did not read between the line. If you look at Japan or Korea, actually there is quite typical for the holding company to have very limited people, you know, in the holding company because there is no actual business in the whole call. And um, in order to fight the battle, if you like, uh, uh, in the cloud business, which is a huge potential area mm. for Ali, I think in China and later on in globally, they need to show the team and market conviction that you are sending the highest rank, you know, general to the battlefield. So I think, you know, um, overnight you see the stock price fluctuation, but I think for domestic China investor, um, it's not a surprise. And actually this is a positive sign that um, the big group, you know, elephant, they're trying to break into, you know, six different teams and these six different units will be led by six different generals. Overall, I think this is a, a good development and um, uh, and I think the whole co company discount will be reduced, you know, should the successful listing in some of the subsidiary. And, and Joe Tsai is an is a old hand and people people know him and he's been involved yeah, I like in the business <laughs> from, from the beginning. 
he does get involved in basketball as well in newspapers, and maybe that hasn't been going as well as some of his <laughs> other businesses, but that's that's all right. Mm. William, do you like in particular any of these six businesses that Alibaba is being uh, split into? Do any of them um, excite you? Because then the growth overall in Alibaba has been slowing, hasn't it? So you've got some unprofitable units, but then you have got some profitable units like the Tmall and Taobao subsidiary, but growth is slowing there. So do you do you like any of those particular six units? Yeah, I think um, for for the next three years, I I think global liquidity is huge. That's why when I do stock pick and sector pick, I particularly like growth type of business. I believe the premium on growth stocks will carry instead of, you know, value. And um, out of the six, I believe the cloud business in particular has huge potential. You know, it's not asset heavy as well as, you know, it's uh, related to the overall kind of like, uh, business, you know, kind of like development rather than just pure consumption. But having said that, I would also argue that the competition on cloud would be quite high as well. If you see the retail, you know, the shifting cost of one cloud to another is quite low. So I, I, I worry down the road, it would be kind of like price competition. But in the near term, I, I like growth. And again, uh, uh, I've mentioned it many times before that um, some of the big tech company was trading at a wrong valuation before uh, in terms of growth because, you know, the era has gone. Now they are trading more like a consumption stocks, you know, earnings growth, mid-teens, and maybe high single digit, low double digit, you know, type of price to earnings ratio is reasonable. But I think for the cloud, it, it would carry a higher premium given the high growth potential. And what about the traditional shopping businesses, the Tmall and the Taobao? I mean, that's that's the area that makes most of the money, isn't it, for uh, for Alibaba? But it's how Jack Ma was reportedly speaking um, a couple of days ago, and he was almost sort mm. of suggesting what you're suggesting, which is that Alibaba's mm. really got a, rather than being a sort of a shopping company, it's got to be an internet uh, growth company, and it's got to focus on things like AI and the cloud business. Yes, it would become like a utility company, if you like. So there's nothing wrong with utility company if the valuation um, is uh, kind of like at the level. And in, in, interesting enough, I think that that is good for investor to have pure play, in particular when the business on the Taobao and Tmall mature and if they start paying out dividend instead of using that capital to put into other, you know, new business that require capital. So I think for certain type of investor, it would be a long-term China utility-like consumption play. If the valuation is right, I believe this is a good diversification for global investors. Mark, you do have to worry a little bit about the political aspect of this, don't you? I mean, surely there was pressure coming from Beijing to, uh, to, to do this split. It wasn't Alibaba's completely own choice. Yeah, I mean, that that's a worry because China's tech industry, and you know, I don't want to generalize too much, grew, grew very impressively uh, for quite a while. And the government supported it, but they didn't get involved that much, at least not, not, not visibly in the business. Now, it seems to be not only in that area, but in, in others as well. And is that going to affect those companies going forward? Because they... Uh, they didn't always they didn't always succeed, but in many cases they did. In part because they were entrepreneurial, and being entrepreneurial means you could you could make your your own decisions to to one extent or another. And if that changes, that might be uh, that that might be interesting. The other thing I just wanted to mention is you know all these things we've been talking about China and it's still very promising in many ways, 
when when companies as well as some investors are looking for alternatives, we we often mention India and Vietnam and other places. But to go into your next segment, Japan is becoming more interesting to all to a lot of companies, not only for people like Warren Buffett, but also for individual companies as a, as a place maybe they hadn't thought they were going to put more money and, and more people in, but now uh, now are considering it. So it'll be well, interesting to see what you hear here next. Yeah, we're going to discuss Japan in just a moment. In the meantime, thank you both very much. Have a great day off tomorrow for the Dragon Boat uh, Festival. You heard there Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and William Ma, who's chief investments officer at Grow Investment Group. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Good morning, William. Morning, Peter. Now, the Bank of Japan, as we know, it left uh, its monetary policy, its ultra-loose monetary stance on hold um, at the end of last week, although there are increasing signs now of a broadening um, in price pressures um, across the, the economy. But nevertheless, the bank left interest rates at minus 0.1%. Why did they do that, given that now, um, if you look at Japan's core inflation rate, it's at 3.4%. It's been consistently above the Bank of Japan's own target now for for more than a year. Why is the BOJ the only central bank, the only major central bank in the world that's still keeping negative interest rates? I, I think at the core it's because Japan is essentially trapped, right? I think when Kazuo Oeda uh, took over as BOJ governor back in April, I think there was a lot of speculation that he would step away from 23, 24 years of quantitative easing. And clearly he's gotten to his office, he's looked around, and he's realized in many ways the BOJ is essentially trapped. You know, when you corner the bond market and the stock market over a couple of decades, it's very difficult to find an exit. And I do kind of wonder if the fact that the Nikkei stock average is at 30-year highs is also giving him an extra concern because the BOJ never wants to be blamed for crashing the economy or crashing the stock market. They got blamed for, you know, ending Japan's 1980s bubble economy back then. And I think the BOJ is very sensitive about taking any steps that in many ways would imperil this, this stock market rally we're seeing. Japan is suddenly getting some nice headlines around the globe. And if you're, you know, Kazuo Oeda and you're on the job for all of two months, do you really want to be the guy to pull out this Jenga piece that takes the whole, um, takes the whole game down, if you will? So it's not really a data-dependent central bank, really, is it? Because if you do look at the data, the Bank of Japan should be lifting interest rates at least into positive territory. You're right. But I think it will, it will be a very long process. I think what you'll see first is the, B, the BOJ at some point will take a small step in the direction of telegraphing change without making a change. Remember back in December when basically when uh, Kurodasan was still the BOJ governor, the BOJ took the, the slightest step it could possibly do at the time it tweaked things very slightly it allowed 10-year yields to rise as high as 0.5 percent and all hell broke loose in the global economy markets mm. just you know markets became volatile the yen surged and the boj stepped back and i'm sure that you know Oweda's team realizes the extent to which anything they do is going to send tremors around the global financial system. So when the BOJ does make a move, I think they will telegraph it for months in advance before they actually begin to, you know, basically rein in liquidity. But you're right with inflation trends the way they are and Japan's so out of sync with what's happening in the rest of the world, it is creating strains that the gap between us and Japanese rates 
it's creating all kinds of headaches for the Bank of Japan and for banks here. And so some change is definitely warranted. I just think that Oeda-san is, I guess, think he's just wary of crashing the stock market at this point. So if they're afraid to do it right now, what would make them do it? What, what would they need to see that will make them take that very tentative first step? Well, if bond yields began rising in ways that they don't like to see, they would be worried, you know, worried about traders leading the BOJ. And so they would be worried about falling behind market sentiment. So at that point, you might see some effort by the BOJ to step forward. The BOJ, I think, needs to do something to remind the global, you know, global markets that it's still on the job, that essentially it needs to log in and mm. <laughs> remind everyone that we're still here. And if you do see 10-year yields trending higher because of inflation numbers, I do think the BOJ would worry about falling behind the curve and losing even more credibility. So that is what could um, could trigger things. And also, if the Nikkei rally begins to get out of hand and, and people start talking about a fresh bubble in Japanese assets, you might see some effort then. But I do think this would be a long-term process. I do think people... People misread the situation back in April when they thought that this gentleman would come in and make wholesale changes right away. I think we could be looking at six or eight months from now before the BOJ really begins telegraphing significant changes. Mm. Well, that's going to be quite a long time to wait. But then in the meantime, presumably, the pressure on the Japanese yen is just going to increase. It's at, what, 142 now um, against the US dollar. Um, the Fed looks set to carry on raising rates. So that yield differential is going to get even worse. And presumably, the, the yen's going to carry on declining. Yes, I just booked a trip to the US uh, in September. And I can't believe, I can't believe the... Uh, <laughs> The, the airfares and hotel fees when paid in yen. You're right. I mean, I think the, the yen is beginning to create problems for the BOJ. I think also Japan has to start thinking about this geopolitically, right? Because the Chinese currency is also trending lower and there's an election coming up in the U.S. Does Japan really want to basically stumble onto the U.S. election scene and give Republicans a reason to beat up Joe Biden on currency rates? And I think that's something that Japan has begun worrying about. And, of course, with the yen weakening, it fans inflation pressures. A lot of the inflation Japan is experiencing is coming from overseas, elevated energy and food prices. And so anytime the yen weakens towards 145, even 150, people begin worrying about even greater inflation jumps. So it is a concern. It's, you know, certainly I really do think that uh, the Bank of Japan, it's probably the worst job in global economics at the moment. Mm. But uh, this is also, of course, fueling the stock market rally, isn't it? I mean, foreign investors are virtually yeah. falling over themselves now to to try and get hold of Japanese stocks. Is we, we haven't seen anything like this for a long, long time, have we? You're right. I mean, and there's a couple of things at play here. I mean, certainly you can argue that you know, 10 years ago, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe came into power. And one of the few reforms he did actually manage to pull off was essentially tightening Japan's corporate governance to some extent. He gave, you know, private companies to give shareholders a greater say in decisions to return to, to increase returns on equity. And that is gaining some traction. But I think also Japan's benefiting from essentially it is the least ugly market uh, among developed markets in the world at the moment. So it's mm -hmm. probably... It's a place where things are, you know, the least highly valued, uh, a lot of cash rich companies. And so investors are looking for a safe and stable place. And that's Japan at the moment um, relative to, say, the U.S. and Europe. And so Japan is benefiting from 
a kind of safe haven trade at the moment, if you will. We'll see if it lasts, but it is fat, you know, it's fascinating to see Japan in the headlines, economically speaking, for all the right reasons in 2023. And there's been the rise, of course, of activist shareholders now in Japan as well. So several companies are getting shaken up, shaken up quite badly, aren't they? They're, they're, they're losing their chairman and CEO and they're being forced to do share buybacks and dividend payouts, which, of course, investors love. Yes, I mean, a lot of these headlines, you know, you look at companies like, say, like Canon, um, you see Toshiba. Um, there are steps in the direction of, of, of basically shareholder demands, and that's Again, creating that some, some nice headlines for Japan around the world of the kind that we haven't seen in a very long time. These shakeups that you're seeing are a sign that, that shareholders are finding their voice and they're being listened to to some extent. Buybacks are happening. You know, I don't mean to suggest that there's some corporate governance revolution going on in Japan, but at the margin, we are seeing some positive signs. And I think any, you know, any, any outside pressure uh, that forces Japanese companies and CEOs to essentially internationalize operations is a step in the right direction. And I think Japan needs more of it. And of course, there's also on top of all of this, all, all these good reasons to be looking at Japan, there's also the Warren Buffett effect um, as well. And we heard on Monday that he's now increased his stake in those five Japanese trading companies to eight and a half percent now. The, the thing I'm surprised about, William, by this is not so much that he's buying these five Sogo Shosas, the, you know, these traditional trading houses, is that he's not actually buying anything else. It's just those five specific trading houses. And he doesn't seem to be tempted by anything else. In Japan. It's true. I mean, what's really interesting when Warren Buffett made these initial purchases, I believe it was back in August 2020, uh, a lot of folks in Japan said, Where? What? These companies? Um, these are old economy trading houses. But arguably, what he's, what he's trying to do is I call it the Moneyball effect. He seems to be trying to rebuild Berkshire Hathaway in Japan in the aggregate by buying shares in these five boring cash rich but stable companies and it's working out for him a lot of these these you know four of the five companies that he bought into these trading companies their share prices have doubled since he since he stepped into japan and i think you know for the government this is a really interesting moment they really should be riding the the, the buffett effect as best they can i mean I, I don't necessarily think that prime minister kashida should bring warren buffett um, over to the prime minister's residence for a press conference. But I do think Japan should be leaning into this moment and saying, look, you know, Warren Buffett's been right about Japan's stock market. Um, maybe you should too. Mm. And, and you've also got there, I mean, although he's not looking at them, have uh, you got a number of AI-related companies, which of course is another big global theme at the moment. There's been virtually a frenzy to buy some of these companies in, in other markets, but you have uh, some good ones there as well. Yes, and what's really good to see at the moment is you do see global venture capital companies angling towards Japan in a bigger way. What's fascinating is the biggest venture capitalist in the world, the most powerful venture capitalist, is Japanese, right? Masayoshi Son at SoftBank. His vision fund invests a lot around the world, but not so much in Japan. And I think the really interesting dynamic will be if Masayoshi Son takes a look at his home, you know, home turf and says, hey, there, there are some good investments here. But you're right. I mean, the venture capital money that is flowing in Japan's way could allow, because Japan's problem is that there's a lot of scrappy, innovative startups. There are a lot. They just have a really hard time getting capital and finding economic space to grow into you know, medium-sized enterprises and large-sized enterprises. Japan has a lot of startups 
They just don't have the playing field here to grow into bigger companies to disrupt the economy. And if we're saying more VC money coming this way, we could see a change in that dynamic. So I do think the next year or two here could be really fascinating. I'm hoping so. William, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Thank you for listening this morning. If you want some more information on some of the stories featured in today's program and other business and finance information, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and take a look at my daily newsletter. There's no money talk tomorrow as it's a public holiday in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan for the Dragon Boat Festival. Money Talk will return on Friday when my guest will be Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities and Alvin Chua, CIO of Noir International Wealth Management. And with a view from Australia, it's Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Enjoy the holiday. Money Talk 